0: In three,
1: two, one. Intergenerational communication in the workforce has become a very popular issue. With four or five different generations converging upon the workplace, we can all benefit from practical strategies to deal with all the differences. All this valuable human capital comes with its share of friction, And managing a multi-generational workforce requires flexible communication, tolerance for the different work styles, and respect for the different perspectives. To help us understand the challenges of managing a multi-generational workforce and what you can do to overcome them is my guest, Kit Welchlin. Hi, Kit. Welcome to the program and the podcast today. Uh, We're so happy to have you. Thanks for making time for us. Thank you, Michael.
0: Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to our conversation.
1: Hey, before we get started, I always like to give a little background of our guests. Now, I know you started your speaking career. I couldn't believe this when I read this, but you started at age nine and you were actively involved with 4-H. I think you grew up on a dairy and hog farm I think in southern Minnesota and then in your 20s you started and built a successful manufacturing company and I think you ended up with several of them by your mid-20s or across three different states I mean at what age did you decide hey this is what I want to do and my career and then when did you transition into becoming an author and a speaker and spreading your message
0: you know it was kind of intermittent the reason I began public speaking at the age of nine is when I grew up I grew up in a position centered family not a person centered family where everyone was have an equal say or an equal vote. There was a true hierarchy in the family where my dad had the most authority then my mom. And then it went from oldest to youngest, and I was the youngest.
1: <laughs> the pecking order. So
0: what would happen around the dining room table is my dad would say something. Then my mom would say something. Then Cabot, Kelly, Corey, and then they changed the subject. And I always had a terrible time (laughs) getting into the conversation. But in 4-H, I could get up in front of a club once a month and give a five or 10-minute speech without interruption and really haven't stopped since. And then when I went to school, I went to college, I studied business speech and political science, and I was on the college speech team. And then I I, uh, left college after my junior year, became a college dropout when that little manufacturing company came up for sale in my hometown. And so I was involved in manufacturing for six years. And you're right, the company did grow to three companies in three states. And all the years we've been growing those companies, we'd run to Mankato or Sioux Falls or Spencer, Iowa, anywhere career track or Dale Carnegie or Skillpath are offering seminars. And we always found that we could go there for a few hours and learn some information we could apply for a few years. And I always found it fascinating that I could take employees to those seminars and workshops. And that outsider, that speaker that had never been in our shop would say something that I had been saying for weeks, if not months, and people would nod their heads and say, that sounds like something we should do. So I I found there was quite a bit of value being an outsider because people believe you're completely objective.
1: You're never a prophet in your own land to bring in somebody outside to say exactly what you've been saying. And then they're going, oh, you're so smart after all. So then where'd you go from there? So what happened was when I was in college and left
0: college to go into manufacturing, one of my college instructors, who was the assistant speech coach, was leaving teaching to go into public speaking full time. And so when I got out of manufacturing, I called Alan. He says, come out to the house, read this book, read this book, do this for two years and all your work will be referral and repeat after that. So I went back to school. I finished my undergraduate degree, picked up a master's degree and started speaking for a living back in 1991.
1: Yeah, that's going back. Now, what attracted you to the subject? Now, I know in 4-H, you know, I grew up in here in Arizona, went to school here and we had big 4-H club. And if I remember the motto, um, 4-H motto, to make the best better, it was the pledge as well. So obviously you're transitioning, your. Now successfully in your businesses and you decide, Hey, I'm going to get into speaking. What attracted you to the subject and our topic of today on multi-generational attitudes, strategies, how we work with the generations of workplace, all the different generations that we have to deal with. What attracted you to that subject and why was there an issue?
0: That's a great question, Michael. And there's a couple of different reasons why I noticed when I was in manufacturing that my oldest employees would always get to work 30 minutes to 45 minutes before we were going to open. And we started at seven o'clock in the morning and I had to get up by six o'clock clock to get there before my oldest employees were already there. And I would say, Bert, you know, Willie, Kenny, what are you doing here so early? Well, you know, everybody else is going to be here in a half an hour. Got to get the coffee ready. And so it was hard to beat my oldest employees to work. And then I found that the baby boomers that I employed, every time we had a company meeting, they wanted to be recognized. They wanted some sort of a trophy or they wanted a shout out about how they performed so well in the last week or right. month or quarter. And then I found the younger people that I was hiring, they would be negotiating their hours before I'd even offer them the job. So I knew there was a little difference in the generations just, you know, (laughs) experiencing it. And I didn't really pay much more attention to it, except when I got out of college with my master's degree. A university in St. Paul was looking for someone that had business experience and a master's degree in speech communication to teach managerial communication in their undergraduate program. And my college advisor said, you're you're the ideal guy for this. Would you mind teaching a night class? And I said, sure. So I started teaching a night class class in the fall of 1991. And then sometimes I was the younger person in the room because I was only 30 years old at the time. And there are many people older than me that were coming back to college to finish their degree so they could get promoted or move up the organization's hierarchy. And then there are a number of people that were younger than me that were <laughs> kind of fascinating to understand or learn how they would see the world. So I kept teaching a night class for the next 27 years because I realized wow, that younger years. two generations were my future clients. And the better I could understand them now, Now, the easier it would be for me to sustain my career when they were the buyer of what I was offering. So I would teach a night class every semester for the next 26 years. And I'd get about 500 reaction papers through the semesters or through the school year that gave me an idea for every chapter of the textbook, they'd have to write a reaction paper. What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? What would you do? What would you never do? What do you recognize from past experience? What are you going to keep in mind moving forward? No real wrong answers, but it's almost like reading their diaries. And it really did pay off that I could connect easily Easily, have conversations that were effective with all those generations just because i have been kind of eavesdropping on them as right. a college instructor.
1: Well, that's interesting. Well, you know, the the topic of intergenerational communication in the workplace has become a very popular one. And that's why, you know, we invited you as a guest. And with four or five different generations, I'm losing track now, converging upon the workplace, everyone, I mean, everyone needs to be equipped with the practical strategies to deal with all of those differences. So what is there? Is there four or five different generations? How many are we up to these days? And, and, and what are they? And what are the differences?
0: You know, today I think there's five, but recently I was giving this presentation to a, a women's leadership group and a young woman says, you know, you didn't really mention the Xennials, that group that grew up with dialed up internet, but also when they were teenagers had their own cell phones. And it's only about a five year slice between <laughs> millennials and Gen Zers. And they thought they should have their own category right?
1: about how unique they are. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e commerce, B2C, and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need. create incredible customer experiences active campaign is the platform we use to reach nurture convert and grow our business and you can use it to grow yours you can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose active campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve you can start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the active campaign trial link And as a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. Now for the rest of my conversation with Kit Welchlin.
0: But I find that, you know, when it comes to veterans and traditionals, which would be my parents, they'd be in you know around 80 years old or so. Those are still our clients. Those are still, and when I work with manufacturing companies, the founders of the company, they still stop by and builders and contractors, they still stop by the work. So I always believe we should have someone close to that age working with us in our organization that can connect easily and and really have conversations that are wildly effective with that oldest generation. And then there's baby boomers, and that would be my three older brothers, they're baby boomers the bone. If you looked up baby boomers in the dictionary, it'd probably be their three pictures, but I'm right on the cut. And and I kind of approach it like a menu. There's some things about being a baby boomer I like, and there's some things about being a Gen Xer that I appreciate. My wife is just a couple of years younger than me. She's a Gen Xer to the bone. And then we have a couple of millennial kids, and then we have a Gen Z daughter. So I think there's five generations that we have to be prepared to make minor adjustments, but it would have a major impact in our relationship.
1: Well, so so people understand the different generations and how they work. So you've got, I I think the 1945 and before we, they used to be called the traditionals. I remember that one, like our parent. And then you got baby boomers, which are born what, 46 through 64, I think. so you were on the cusp there 64, 65. It depends on the researchers.
0: There's (laughs) about a five years, kind of a gray area, depending if it's Pew Research or other researchers. You know, it used to go, you know, from 1960 to 1980 and then 1980 to 2000, you know how they'd break it down. Then they backed it up to 1995 because of, the big changes because of the internet. And then they kind of got kind of gray between the Gen Xers and the baby boomers. And so, yeah, but I always tell people is the information that I share with them in a seminar workshop, probably 70% of it you can count on that really would help you connect and lead and guide the different generation. But- You know, if it's someone that had been influenced by their grandparent or their mom or their uncle or maybe Mm -hmm, someone mm -hmm. that had a mentor that was their same age, you know. So there's other issues or events in people's lives that can have an effect on their assumptions and expectations about what work is really like. Sure, and
1: I think, and good point. If you were raised by baby boomers, you're gonna have that perspective. It's kind of like our kids, we always had 70s music playing all day long. And when they were teenagers, they actually thought that was the current music. So when they started hearing all the the latest stuff, they're going, what have you been holding out on us for? But they know all the classics. So, uh, you know, I'm a rock and roll guy, so we grew up in those era. But uh, 70s and 80s, you know, that was good music. I found by staying up on the music, by actually listening to the modern stuff that does keep you in tune with it. You know, if I'm talking to a gen X or a millennial, I might ask him, Hey, what do you like to listen to? Or what do you think of this? Or, you know, and name an artist or two and just do some name dropping. And they're like, Oh, good. You like their stuff or, and listen to it versus our parents who said, turn that row off, you know, or turn that music off. It's how do you listen to that rubbish and every generation seems to battle with that. So, and, and it's all about that connection, as you mentioned. Now, each generation kit um, seems to have its own idea, thoughts, and assumptions concerning authority, career goals, rewards, life balance, you know, work-life balance. What happens is we have to learn to accept those differences and understand those expectations and tailor our work processes so we can all benefit from it. What should we be learning as organizations or as leaders or managers to attract and develop and retain our talent no matter what their ages?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, that oldest generation, the veterans and traditionals, they tend to to have careers where they worked in one place. It was lifetime employment. They usually ended up with a pension at the end. My oldest brother, who is a police officer, actually ended up with a pension, and he's a little bit younger than 70. So that seems to be kind of rare. But that generation, that oldest generation tended to retire from something, not to something, So they really struggled to feel valued or relevant. Now, the baby boomer generation, though, they tend to retire to something. They'll start a nonprofit or they'll start a consultancy or they'll invest heavily in some sort of a charity with all their talents, abilities and skills. But they have some other kind of mission that they're going to take on after their career. And then when it comes to the Generation Xers, they kind of want that balance right now. My next oldest brother is an orthopedic surgeon, and he has about 50 employees. He has a surgery center. He has an open-sided MRI. He has a half a dozen other doctors and specialties and nurses and nurse practitioners, and He has about 50 employees, but he's the only baby boomer. He'd love to run his clinic on Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings, but he doesn't get anybody willing to give up their personal time (laughs) to work on Wednesday night or Saturday morning. And then the millennials, it's kind of interesting with them when it comes to balance, because They're more concerned about, you know, work isn't everything, I need flexibility. And I think that's part of our fault as parents where they had an activity before school, they had an activity after school, they had an activity on Saturday, they had an activity on Sunday. You know, we kept them involved in sports and all these activities, and they kind of want work to be that way too, where it's somewhat compartmentalized. Get this done in two hours, what's the next thing I do? Get done in two hours. So I always tell people, if you ever have a millennial say, I'm not sure I want to do this the rest of my life, you need to swoop in there like a SWAT team. (laughs) Say I understand that, but can you hang in there till Friday? We'll find you something different to do. Stick it out. And then that Gen Z, the Gen Z is that youngest generation that's probably twenty five years, twenty four years, and young. They kind of integrate their work life with their social life. My my wife's a commercial lender, and the youngest employees, you know, they go to concerts with their coworkers. They They uh, go to happy hours with their coworkers. They, they kind of had blended their work relationships with their personal lives, which is kind of fascinating because Generation Xers have, you know, they tend to have friends outside of, and the uh, millennials, you know, they have certain interests where they have friends, almost kind of like pods of, close a network of people. So it's really fascinating how they balance their life. And I recently came across a study that said 73% of millennials really struggle with work and life balance. And right. I don't know if that's real or well imagined.
1: No, I think it's probably an issue. One, one thing I do admire about as a baby boomer, you know, I started with the paper route age, you know, eight, nine, and 10, I then worked in the family business at, you know, 10, 11, and 12, 14, 15, got a real job. So I've always worked. I was figuring out the other day, I was, you know, I've worked for I don't even want to say it, but over half a century I've been working. We look at the younger generations and go, well, where's your work ethic? And we, and we judge them. But- you know, who's to say ours is the best plan. We've polluted our rivers. We've polluted our planets. It's all about more more, more. and more. we wanted to create a better lifestyle for our families and our kids. And so we put them into activities like you mentioned, soccer, hockey, whatever it was going to be, dance or whatever the extracurricular was. And they want that life balance. So I think we have something to learn from them because I think it is a good way. It's not just about making money after all. Does that impact how they might look at a career goal for instance? Things have changed obviously, but when they're coming into the workforce, are they looking at their careers a little differently and how many careers they might have like you and i might have had two or three careers in our lifetime and you've had several and i've had several i read somewhere that you know our average baby boomer might have six to eight careers in their life or a millennial or a gen z would might have 15 to 20 careers in a lifetime
0: yeah you know it's, it's interesting i uh, back in 1980 to 1983 i took an interviewing class in college and at that time it was uh, an interview book with a 1981 copyright that said that you shouldn't change jobs more often than seven to 10 years. Otherwise you'd look like a job hopper. Then about 15 years later, I was teaching that night class interviewing for that university. And it was the fourth edition of that textbook. (laughs) And it said, you shouldn't change jobs more often than five to seven years. (laughs) Now, when it comes to millennials and the Gen Zs, changing jobs is possibly part of their daily routine. (laughs) So you have someone that thinks five to seven years or seven to 10 years before you change jobs, right. and then this other person's thinking this afternoon or next week, I want to try something different. Now, now we were talking earlier before our, our interview that I worked with the United States Probation Office that has that mandatory retirement age of 57, and they did not have a turnover problem because it's a 20-year pension and then they can retire, so they can't hire anybody older than 37, otherwise they won't qualify for the 20-year pension to retire at 57. And they never had a turnover problem because they were hiring Gen Xers. Then they started hiring millennials. And millennials would start to get bored after about six weeks saying, I'm not exactly sure this is what I want to do the rest of my life. And they started having turnover and it was costing them tens of thousands of dollars to try to keep you know, feeding the requirements for HR. And so uh, we came up with a plan that there's three different tracks you can take. You can prepare for trial, you can be in the trials, or you can be out in the field keeping track of people. And so we made sure that every few months or so, they'd move to the next track, move to the next track. They'd get recognized for completing that first step, and then they go back to the original one. And after they made two or three rounds going to the different types of work that's in part of probations, then they'd kind of zero in on what they wanted to continue to do for the rest of their career. And they kind of had the golden handcuffs that the pension would be
1: there and they were getting good
0: money and good vacation. And so that's how they kind of fixed that.
1: And you raise an interesting issue. It really goes as as managers and leaders, how do we motivate? How do we incentivize the different generations? Because we're all incentivized and motivated differently. Like, so for instance, as a baby boomer, I'm motivated by positive reward. That always helps, right? So give me a bigger paycheck or better performance bonus or give me a good parking spot. How does that work when it comes to incentivizing the different generation? Do they all work the same? Or should we be paying attention to how that applies to them as an individual basis within the generation? Any suggestions for us there?
0: Yeah. I, you know, I think I see there is a big difference, you know, the veterans and traditionals, they really didn't need the fanfare and they really didn't need a trophy. They'd pat themselves on the back job. Well done. You know, they kind of have the approach to feedback. No news is good news. You had mentioned how long you've worked. I grew up on a hog and dairy farm. So same thing right. you know, out feeding cattle or pitching manure or grinding feed. It's kind of a vicious cycle on the farm. And one day my next older brother and I were out pitching manure with our dad. And it was uh, just before Memorial day. And my next older brother says, I'm so sick and tired of pitching manure. I'm going to go into town and get a job. And the old man said, yeah, go ahead. So he worked at an A&W that was a seasonal restaurant. And he came back after Labor Day and there, the three of us were again, pitching manure. <laughs> and right. he said, you know, Mr. Hansen never said anything about my job performance all summer. And my dad said, then you must have done a good job.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> no news, is news, good news is good news. Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, and baby boomers are the ones that came up with those annual performance appraisals that right. everybody dreads. And uh, baby boomers also, you know, when I took a class on urban and regional studies back in the old days, they talked about how to build office buildings and all those books are written by baby boomers where you needed to have so many corner offices. So people would be promoted to the corner offices and how many stories you needed. So you had enough of those, because of course, that's what they wanted, you know, the corner office. They wanted the nice parking spot, you know, with the generation Xers they want balance now, not when they're 65. So to reward them with PTO personal time off or, you know, some sort of unlimited vacation time, because they, they're hardworking, you know, they just, they just don't need to have that much, you know, interpersonal interaction with their coworkers. And then millennials, you know, when it comes to rewarding them, it's work has to have meaning to me. There needs to be some sort of a purpose. There needs to be some sort of a passion. And so as managers and leaders, we need to continually remind them the impact it's having in our community, the impact it's having on that family, the Mm. impact we're having in our industry. Mm -hmm. When it comes to Generation Z, they're more global in their thinking and they're more concerned about what your organization is doing as far as world poverty and human rights and those sort of issues. Saving, and so saving you dolphins, really kind of have yeah. to quiz them.
1: Right. So when it comes to their performance, and and I know companies are having a hard time with this with remote workers, like how do we motivate them, incentivize them when they're working remotely? And and it comes to training and development as well. I know you see that with the difference between delivering feedback to each of the generations. So as a baby boomer, you're going to say one thing and to a millennial or Gen Z, you're going to say something else. What are some of the strategies we can use when we're trying to incentivize those different generations or give feedback? How do they like to receive that feedback, if you will?
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting that the training and the feedback kind of go hand in hand. That oldest generation was on the job training. They started in the warehouse, worked their way to the front office. When it comes to the baby boomers, there's always a concern if you trained someone too much, they'd leave and start a company that would compete with you. (laughs) And then when it came to Generation Xers, I remember I had a couple of Gen Xers that worked with me in this business, the speaking business back in 1993 and 1995. And there was a book out called Crazy Times Call for Crazy Organizations. And in there, they said the performance appraisal system you should use on that generation would be their resume. And as long as there was something new on their resume every three months, they'd stick around. They learned a new software. They developed a new skill. They have a powerful resume Mm. because that's the generation that grew up hearing about big companies laying two or 3,000 people off at a time. So you really couldn't trust big business. Also, that was the time they were growing up in the formative years of Watergate. And so you couldn't trust government either. So they really want things in writing. They're just not going to take your word for it. And then when it comes to millennials, you know, they get a lot of their information off of YouTube and look for information that way. And and with the training with the millennials, they realize it's a continuous way of life. It's always going to be that way. Now with the gen... Zers to keep them interested because they'll decide in the first six weeks if they're going to stay or if they're going to take off. You have to lay out for them a short term training goal and then a medium sized training goal, which is more soft skills, you know, maybe some leadership classes, some sort of emotional intelligence courses so they see that out maybe 6 months to a year or two out and then the long term plans where they can see the progression of their career because they're going to want to do that many of them want to move into management within the first 6 months to a year right. so we got to have these three different tracks kind of and what i call it is snack size training where it isn't very long and they can access it with their mobile devices they can and, and they love video they love gamification of the training they really want it to be interactive You know, really, they want to have a seat at the table, whether they're the Gen Zers or the millennials, whether they have that much experience or not. And the attention spans have dropped so much, you know, from what used to be 45 seconds to about 20 seconds with millennials, six seconds with Gen Z. So they have several platforms of social media that they're running all at the same time. So they might be on TikTok. They might be on Pinterest. They might be on Instagram. They might just send out Snapchat. And they're also sending out an email. So they are very busy and they are great at adapting. I remember one time I was attending a conference with chief information officers that I was speaking at and they talked about that they one researcher believed that attention deficit syndrome was the emergence of the human mind to adjust to such rapid change because of technology. And it actually is what's going to protect the species so that we can make that adaption or adjustments and modifications that quickly. So he believed <laughs> that it was actually right. a, a wonderful, positive
1: thing. Yeah. Well, I think it does make a difference. Now you... Again, you raise an interesting point where as companies, when we're onboarding new employees that represent, are representative of the different generational eras, if you will. We should almost have a different onboarding process to set expectations, uh, identify their goals or objectives so that we can support them on a one-to-one basis instead of size fits all approach to things.
0: Absolutely. And you know that onboarding starts before they even get to the job site. So we should be making sure once we've offered them the position, we're checking in with them every three or four days or so, telling them how excited we are that they're going to be joining us. The first day, we need to make sure we're there to meet them, go to lunch with them, introduce them to people, compliment the people that are currently working there. One of the things you're going to love about working with Jane is, one of the things you're going to love working with Joe is, and Brianna, because she has these skills and talents. And so you you make those relationships. The next day, you have somebody else, be sure they're available to go to lunch with them. You have somebody that's an executive call from another location saying, hey, I understand you just joined our company. We're so glad that you're part of our team. And, and then you have personal mentors that stop by. Any questions, any concerns? You know, this is what we do in our department. If you're interested, let us know. And I mean, it's gotta be those first 45 days have got to be very connected. You have to be mm. in there connecting, you know. And the nice thing is with technology now, you don't have people flying all over the country to do it. You can just get on a Absolutely. Zoom call or a WebEx or a Teams meeting and, and have those conversations. So the key is, though, you, you've got to be much more involved, much more active and keep pushing the passion and the purpose, and then they'll stick around. And if it's a special purpose, there's a study that claims that six times more likely they'll hang around if they kind of connect with the special purpose of your organization. So however you identify that would be valuable.
1: Yeah, no, good advice. Good advice. So when we, when we talk to them and we've onboarded them there's obviously stereotypes and how we communicate with those stereotypes of the different generations Can you touch briefly on the different stereotypes and how the negative stereotypes that we have to overcome within an organization so for instance I know if you know you're a, a millennial and you show up in the, there's a majority of baby boomers. Everybody's making judgments, right? So the baby boomers are making judgments. They're making judgments about the baby boomers. What are the traditional stereotypes? And then how or what kind of communication strategies can we use for connecting with each of those generations easier?
0: You know, that that's a great question. You know, the oldest generation, they'd like you to take some time and actually have a conversation. Uh, baby boomers, I always say this to people. You know, it's kind of like the the golden rule is really the platinum rule. Do unto others as they'd like to be done unto Mm -hmm. So you might have a veteran or traditional that was the founder of the organization or a key influencer with their company, their organization or foundation. They want to probably go to breakfast. They probably want to make eye contact. They want to have a long conversation to see what you're all about. Now, you'll walk out of that meeting. The next thing you'll get is a phone call from a baby boomer saying, stop by my office. I'd like to talk with you because they love being in their office. And then when it comes to the Gen Xer, uh, that person will send you an email and then a millennial they'll probably send you a text message and then that gen zer well they might send you i don't know snapchat or they might send you an insta you know and and the key is is to become skilled in all those different platforms so you communicate or respond to them the way they would like to be responded to. So it does take a certain amount of gymnastics in our communication style to do that. But they're little simple things, you know, and recognizing those. And, you know, really with the Gen Xers, if you're marketing to them, ask them how they'd like to be marketed. Do you want it in the mail? Do you want it in email? Do you want me to text it to you? Because that's a generational you know, that always seems to be forgotten. And sometimes they had to adapt to baby boomers and what baby boomers wanted. Now they're being asked to adapt to what millennials and Gen Z's wanted. And I think they're kind of wondering, why didn't anybody adapt to us? Okay. <laughs> And I think we just need to have that open communication.
1: Some of those challenges, and I know you've talked about these in your program is you've got companies today that are facing significant retirements. We saw last fall, 4 million people left the workforce. You've got people suffering turnover from generational friction. What is that exactly? Well, How would you define generational friction? It's
0: kind of interesting. The, the traditionals and veterans kind of resist turning over the reins of authority and decision-making baby boomer kids, but probably generation Xer kids because their fear is, you know, they'll make different decisions or just sell the business or whatever might be. So I always find when I work in agriculture with family farms, that oldest generation They want to control it from the grave. They don't want the kids inheriting that farm and just selling it, laying on the beach. And because I think my parents realized that's exactly what my three brothers and I will do. We'll just sell that land, go to the beach. And uh, we find the Gen Xers are more conservative in how they spend their money because they don't believe there's going to be a social safety net financially, whether it's Social Security or some other type of government funding for the elderly. And then the baby boomers, they tended to spend their money as fast as they were making it, expensive cars and trendy (laughs) suits. I mean, they always wanted to live a full life when they were younger and be active. And then uh, when it comes to the millennials, we used to joke, they spend their parents' money as fast as they can. But there's a a Bank of America study that says, you know, quite a percentage of them have a hundred grand put away. They are good at saving. Most of them keep a savings plan and are more conscious of it. And then the Generation Zers, it's more of you know, to incentivize them or the reward for them is activities, events. They want tickets to something and they want to go do something. They don't want stuff. They just want to have experiences.
1: Experiences. Sure, that makes sense.
0: So oh. there are some stereotypes, you know, but this is kind of funny, you know, <laughs> millennials always talk about their entitlement mentality, you know, but I always say they were born on third base and they believe they hit a triple, you know, and they, <laughs> they are kind of entitled <laughs> in a way because they've right. had, you know, such a wonderful, uh, you know, we had a great economy. It was, uh, we've had... Uh, great opportunities, that technology that has made it so much right. less manual labor right. for many people. I mean, uh, there's been so many advantages that they were just granted because of the, you know, when they were born and what, what's what been going on. Then, you know, the oldest generation always was handing over the reins of authority. Baby boomers have always, you know, kind of resented that generation Xers wanted balance because baby boomers never wanted balance. I work with the trucking industry, baby boomer truck drivers, they'd like to retire. They'd like to spend some time with their grandchildren because they worked all the time and didn't get to spend time much time with their with their kids, but their you know what? younger range. drivers aren't interested in driving coast to coast or long haul. One of my clients is in the mulch business, mm-hmm. and they, they, there was a trucking company there saying that, be prepared, it's going to be a little bit more expensive because we're not going to be driving as far. We're going to have smaller trucks, we're going to have more locations, we're going to have more overhead because every one of our truck drivers wants to get home at the end of the night. And they're going to drive long haul so you know we have these uh, kind of these stereotypes but you know often with a stereotype there's a little bit of it you know that seems sure. to be somewhat true we, you know yeah we all have those and, prejudices and so we have or biases to make sure that- yeah. yeah, you know, and, and it's just that cognitive conservatism or whatever you would call it, that we just have these expectations and it, it just doesn't apply to everybody. That's the key to keep in mind and Don't treat generalize. each other as individuals. Yeah. That's nope. the key.
1: That's right. Don't generalize. Ah, well, nope. it seems like there's the negatives that we see happen in the workforce with the, or the challenges, if you will, with the, having a multi-generational workforce. What are the advantages for companies and organizations? Is there an advantage for them to have a diverse and multi-generational team working for them. I mean, there's the obvious multiple perspectives. You've got different problem-solving abilities because the younger folks are good at gaming, solving problems. I mean, they they rip through they, My My grandson, you know, it's amazing how quick they adapt and learn. But then you've got mentoring opportunities, learning, knowledge transfers, retention relationships. Do you, do you see some advantages to having a multi-generational workforce?
0: Yeah, there's a General Motors study that talked about how they did a study on the generations where they had people of the same generation and then they had people that were of all the generations in the workplace and they found that the workforce or the teams that were multi-generational tended to be more creative, tended to be more energized, tended to be more committed. And you know I, I think it's the appreciation of the differences not the frustration that comes with the differences is what the key is. And I always find that the generations that benefit is if you're in a mentor relationship and you're trying to help someone to be successful in their career and motivated and inspired to continue in that industry, it makes you as the mentor Do a little bit more homework. You want to make sure what you tell them is actually the truth and not just (laughs) something you had heard. And it kind of puts us back into the position of digging in a little bit, digging a little deeper, working a little bit harder, even re-inspires us. To make sure that we really know our stuff instead of just being lucky. So it does enhance the responsibility for the mentor and the interest. And for the mentee, there's tremendous values. I put together a mentor leadership program thinking that when the baby boomers were going to be leaving that it'd be nice if they would be prepared with the communication skills and a format to follow some communication constructs that would be useful in mentoring younger employees. But, you know, as I have been aging out of my industry in a way, it seems like the younger generations may not find that that is necessary to be mentored. You know, that the younger two generations put more emphasis on being able to find the information, not necessarily knowing the information. And with technology, yeah, they can have access to all the world's knowledge and information. So
1: and if they
0: are skilled mm-hmm. with the technology, they can get the information.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: And they may not need that mentoring relationship to them may seem redundant or a waste of time.
1: Well, it's so it's like when you and I grew up and went to school, the educational huh. Focus was always on science and math. If you were academically oriented, you were pushed into that direction. If you weren't, you were pushed into a vocational direction. And universities value, I saw one study that showed Harvard turned down 3,000 4.0 students in the last couple of years. And we've got tons of educated people with all the math and science and, hey, Siri, or, hey, Alexa, we can get all the information we're looking for. So it's knowing how to learn and how to find things and the information changes. Yeah, the older generations have to adapt to that and use the technology because I know that's a challenge. Technology usage within organization dress codes. For instance, I grew up in the suit and tie era. You were professional. And those are issues even facing corporations today as older generations are coming work more formal. They dress separately from work. And how does that apply to the younger generation? You see them outside of work or in work, they're wearing the same thing. Are there some rules we should be looking at there or applying?
0: I guess, you know, they used to say, clothes make the man. I don't know if everybody ever said that, but I do know if I don't dress professionally, I don't act quite as professional, but I think that's just my own mindset. I I do think it's gone a little bit to the point that at a casual Friday, it almost looks more like pajama Friday. And I think there should be some sort of guidelines as far as what would be appropriate. And of course, whenever you're meeting clients, what needs to be that brand that we want to make sure that we are reinforcing. I was just reading an article earlier today about HR needs to be on the marketing team. So they understand what we're trying to market as an organization and you're hiring people and they understand that that's what we're trying to do as an organization. So whether you're on the job or off the job or whenever you're on a social media site, It's kind of reflecting on the organization and it needs to be congruent. One of the things, you know, in our interview today, I'm wearing a sport coat as we're having this conversation. Right, right. And I, you know, I, one time a a colleague of mine made fun of me because I, he said, I've never seen you without a suit or a sport coat on. And I said, yeah, and I, you know, my pajamas are double breasted. (laughs) <laughs> so I um, I tend to be a little right. bit more formal in my attire. And, you know, we used to talk about an in interviewing. I used to do this for years. If I had the chance as a speaker, as a salesperson, when I was in manufacturing, I'd park and watch people go in and out of that organization I wanted to sell. And I had three different shades of suits in my car. And I go down to the local gas station, go in the bathroom, change into that suit. So when I'd walk in, people look at me like I already worked there. And then they they look at me like they're looking for my badge. And I said, I'm I'm here to see so-and-so. Oh, oh, okay. You know, and they were kind of surprised that I wasn't an employee. And it's called the law of uh, symmetry. You know, we kind of like people that are like us and we can't help that bias in a way because it's so comfortable and so easy to connect and so I I don't know, I have always said to myself, if I'm a blue fish in a green pond, I gotta figure out how to change to a shade of green. Otherwise I'm gonna get eaten by the big fish a lot. Problem yeah. I find now is that when people when people are working virtually, yeah, right, you know. There's an old politicking technique that says you're either visible or you're invisible. And so if you don't have your camera on or if you're not participating in that virtual meeting and other people are in the office and you have casual conversations in the hallway or go to lunch or see each other before the day starts or that first phone call, the people that are there physically are visible. The people that just come in virtually a couple of times a day. Yeah, you're not quite as visible. Right. And so when you see things happening, you see people, you see things happening, you see people, and you see those people that expect things to happen. I think it's quite a tremendous advantage to be there physically.
1: I was told, Dark, dress for your next promotion. And like you said, mirror them. And because they're looking around the room and they see you, you will stand out and they'll go, you must be management material. Clothes do make a difference. You you sound
0: familiar already.
1: Yeah, we judge books by their cover, rightly or wrongly. That's still a, we form our assumptions accordingly. Now you mentioned social media. And you know, I remember when Facebook first came out and you know, we're on social, on uh, Facebook and then Instagram and all the different, different sites and different programs. Where do each of those different generational, you know, folks live? Like I find most of my kids are on Instagram. I used to creep their Facebook pages, but they kind of evolved over to Instagram. So now I've got to go check out there. And to me, social media is kind of the new mall. You know, when I was younger, we'd go to the mall and you're seen at the mall. You go to the high school football game, you're seen at the game. Uh, People see me there. Now they go to those games, they go to the mall, snap pictures, whatever events they're at or concerts. Hey, look what I'm doing. And where do they live? Where where do we find those different generations?
0: That's a great question. I was just working with a large real estate company. And originally when I worked with them the first time it was for their company to position themselves on their website and their social media to attract the most successful agents in every age bracket. Then the second time I worked with them on this topic, it was how do we communicate with the buyers and sellers in those generations to make sure we're showing them homes that they would like, or we can kind of expect how the conversations are going to go and what are the platforms they use so we can find them. So this this is just in the last couple of months that I found this, that that oldest generation, you know, they still want you to take the time. They kind of like the door-to-door thing where they get something that's paper. They know you went to the effort to show up and that's important to them. And they want you to, you know, if you do have a website, you want to make sure the phone number is really big and it's about the first thing they see because they will pick up the phone and call. And so you want to make sure that you do that. Now, when it comes to the baby boomers. Well, it's Facebook and YouTube is where they have their social life. But of course, they're the ones that are using LinkedIn. Right. And also they're starting to use a little bit of Pinterest, but it's usually uh, Facebook and YouTube, one for personal connections, one for somewhat entertainment, and then LinkedIn for their professional relationships. Now, Gen Xers, now they're kind of a funny bunch. Because the two platforms they use the most often are Facebook and YouTube. And then it's Pinterest and Instagram after that. So that's why it's so important to ask them, how would you like to be marketed to? And then when it comes to the millennials, uh, this generation uses YouTube first. Our daughter uh, forgot how to jump her car. And, you know, in Minnesota, it gets kind of cold and your battery gets kind of tired after a couple of years. And so she just, on her smartphone, looked up a YouTube video, how to jump your car with jumper cables. So she just looked it up on YouTube. She didn't even call me. So YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat, as you had mentioned earlier, and then Facebook, because Facebook seems to be the older generations now. It's not cool anymore. Right. And then Twitter and Pinterest. And, and then that youngest generation, it's YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat in that order, according to uh, Business Insider. So it's, it's fascinating how we have to really cover all the bases if we're trying to connect or market to or do business with all those generations. We pretty much need to be active on all the platforms so they can see us. You know, it's the old thing when you're unknown or they're unaware of you. And so you have to become familiar and then right. preferred and then you know actually connect or do business together.
1: Is there a messaging that we should be paying attention to to those on those social platforms? So for instance, we're posting things. What do they want to see for the different generations? In other words, what's a good questions or language or how we actually sell the words we use, the approach we take? So, for instance, mo- many have been trained in different personality styles, you know Myers-Briggs, selling to this kind of an individual or that kind of individual, but generationally. How does that apply? And should we be paying attention to some strategies that would help meet those needs of those different generations and talk their language?
0: You know, I remember back when I was interviewing people that there was a no, no to have your picture on a resume and he didn't want dates because you didn't want people to be hired or chosen right, not right. to be hired because of their age. And now all that information is readily available. Right. It's always kind of fascinating to me how you can go to their social platforms and learn so much you didn't even want to know about everybody. So uh, that oldest generation, of course, it's all they wanted in writing. Now, when it comes to the baby boomers and that type of a connection, you know, they still like the face to face thing. They like samples. They like catalogs. They like uh, to touch it. They like to feel it. And they also want to know you're a winner. They want to see whether Mm. it's on your website or your promotional material, you succeeded at this. You're a number one at this. You received this award. They love that stuff. So you got to make sure that. Yeah. But when it comes to Gen Xers, they want the facts. They just want the information. They're not going to make quick decisions. They they would like some links in the information that you send to them so they can do the research themselves. They're not going to just take your word for it. They're going to dig in a little bit. And then when it comes to the millennials, they're the type of folks to know how they can immediately apply. Apply the information. So, what are they going to do with it? And how do those products affect them socially, environmentally, ethically? They want to know what the value is, but they kind of like the visual aspect of it. So, they want storyboards, they want, you know, some video something that's short so that they can glance at it and get it. But their whole focus, what's important? Why is this important to me? And then when it comes to the Gen Zers, you know, connecting with them, you really have to think about the, I guess, the groups that they are in, the information that is not politically charged. So your organization doesn't have some sort of trouble with people that disagree with you. But that youngest generation the disease. They have such short attention spans, and so if we're trying <laughs> yeah, to hire them, sure. we got to talk. We got to talk about salary, work-life balance, and job security, of course. But they love short videos. You know, TikTok right. is their thing. You know, and right. in, in just a few seconds. And there's organizations that are doing that. You know, where they provide it's, you know
1: some sort of marketing with TikTok videos. Yeah, speaking so, sound bites. Got to speak in sound bites, short and sweet. Well, it's like right. learning and education. I remember, you know, our generation, we'd watch a 45 minute to 60 minute training video and we'll sit in front of the computer and do it. The millennials, 17 minutes, max, max. And the Gen Zers, seven minutes. And it better be on my mobile device or I'm not paying attention to it. So- yeah, And they
0: also want that to be accessible 24 hours a day. So when they feel like looking it up, they can. And you know, just little snack size, bite-sized pieces.
1: Well, it's interesting how they communicate and what tools they use to do that. And again, we've c- created that and I'm not sure, I think the verdict's out on how positive and how that works for us socially. It's kind of like when it comes to dating, you know, they've got sites, they, they swipe right for a date in my day, you had to go ask the girl and risk getting told no, and now they just swipe right and it's uh, Hey, nice to meet you. And even when it comes to selling, if you've got a small, um, you know, a, a younger organization, they want the details. They don't necessarily want to see a face-to-face person. They just send us the details i can hit uh, google and the search button and come up with comparative pricing get all the information i need and i can make a decision so why do i need to talk to you so it creates a challenge for organizations for sure last question for you what can we do as organizations as businesses as entrepreneurs and solopreneurs and within our corporations to cultivate a successful multi-generational workforce because there's lots of advantages to it What are two or three things that we can do to cultivate that environment so that we can actually reap the benefits from having a multi-generational workforce you're gonna
0: have to really put in some time and effort on that website because that's what people are going to go to first Mm -hmm. and on that website it needs to have visual images of people that you're trying to attract and the activities and video that is what goes going to be what they're going to experience on the job and then millennials, as the millennials that currently work for you, why do you work here? And whatever they say should be the information that you have in those job descriptions and mm, in those videos. And and have and people have to, you know, millennials really rely on seeing peers that say, this is a great place to work. They're not going to take necessarily your word for it. They, they've got to see it. And you know, with that youngest generation, the novelty, it's the purpose, it's the passion. It's got to be full engagement to keep them or at least get them in the door. And the more that we can do that, the better, but it's always kind of a challenge because their attention span is so short. So it's got to be super short videos and it's got to be what you're doing to support the community because the millennials are more interested in that. And then that. Youngest generation, what you're doing globally, and you had mentioned the environmental issues, you know the poverty issues, the support for you know world hunger, those sort of things. I'll give you an example. My my. Uh, brother, the surgeon. He used to get from his patients every once in a while, oh, Goodness gracious doc, you know, why does it cost 150 bucks to see you? You know, you know, putting fuel in your airplane, uh, you know, that kind of thing. He always got a lot of grief or negative feedback about what, a, what an office visit would cost. And I said to him, well, what you got to do is in every exam room, in every hallway, in every waiting room, you put up all the pictures of the money you give to the Salvation Army, how you support the Little League baseball team and the girls soccer team, and how you have athletic trainers at every football game. And right. you got to put... Every because he was giving away more than 100 grand a year to the local charities but he, but nobody knew that if you want people to quit complaining about you know your new right. car or right. your airplane you right. got to let them know what you're doing in the community and so he just plastered the walls with that stuff and it completely went away yeah. so that the younger two generations are really concerned about yeah 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 you do plenty for people and you're getting paid for it but what are you doing for people when you're not getting paid for it and we got to make sure that's front and center if we want to attract those younger two generations. Now, those Gen Xers, you know, you've got to talk about work and life balance. you got to make sure that's on the website and show how you have flexibility and the hours and the PTO, you know, the personal time off. And, and then with the, the baby boomers, of course, you know, all the award certificate plaques, trophies and the conventions and accomplishments. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they love that. Why not?
1: No, it makes sense. Well, it does make it interesting. And I mean, everyone has their tribe. We all have our different tribes. We tend to gravitate towards them. It's kind of when we get together as couples, you know, it might be five or six couples within 10 minutes, you'll see the men on one side of the room, the women are on the other side of the room. Uh, You'll see the younger people on the other side. We tend to gravitate to those tribes, right? Based on what we're interested in. And so it's our job to be able to, as organization and as leaders and managers and owners, to be able to cross that divide and create flexibility I think within the workforce and recognize the strengths and the wide diversity of values, the preferred communication styles, their mental well being issues, preferred methods of working, basically to the point of how they dress. And so, as leaders, I believe, understand the different characters of each generation, and you've done a great job explaining them for us here today, Kit they'll more easily discover the strengths of each generation and then can use that to improve collaboration, build a cohesive team with their, their managers and their people and create a workforce environment that really all generations can contribute to fully and embrace the qualities of their work colleagues. So it becomes a nice mix of all of those inputs and perspectives.
0: Yeah, so that's a wonderful summary. Yeah, it should be something we look forward to. If I disagree with you, I should be genuinely interested and intrigued by that to find out how come
1: well so you talk I... about that too that's another episode about listening and active listening and I know you've got some great programs on that and speaking of programs if people want to get more from this on our show notes we've got links to your website where you'll also be able to download previews of your managerial communication kit and if they visit YouTube you've got over 250 videos that they can learn from as well so you're very generous with the content that you have and they'll be able to contact you if they want you for an event or a speaking event I know you're busy and do literally uh you know, each year, dozens and dozens of engagements and nice to have it back after COVID so we can get back to some sense of routine and normalcy. Uh, very generous with your content. I know there's lots of good resources there. We'll post it on the website as well. Our guest today is Kit Welchlin. And Kit, thank you so much for, again, for your time, for your explanation. Love to have you back on the program and talk about some of your other subject areas where it talks about taking companies to the next level and up-leveling our performance. I know you're always contributing. If you were to have a superpower, Uh, something that you're just really amazing. This is where you get to, you know, your unique ability. What would you say your superpower is, Kit?
0: As a presenter, as a speaker?
1: As a human being.
0: When I got into the speaking business, I had used as the baseline that it had to be fun. Otherwise I wasn't going to do it. And so when I am in a call with a client or, you know, a future client or prospect, and I say, you know, one thing we have to clear up, we're going to have a lot of fun and they're going to accidentally learn quite a bit. Is that all right? I think it just... It's easier to learn if we can laugh every once in a while to relieve some of that pressure, to give our frontal cortex a little bit of a break and to release some of those endorphins. So I always like to have a lot of fun in my presentations. And, you know, when they go to my YouTube channel and see my conversations with myself, you know, it's a six camera shoot where I try to help a struggling image of myself from years ago. And sometimes (laughs) he gets it, sometimes he doesn't. I just think. You know, there's enough that goes on in our life that is disappointing and frustrating and having some training or professional development that's fun and
1: lighthearted. I think that's
0: the best way to approach it.
1: You bet. So we know the superpower. What's the challenge? What's your kryptonite? What's the thing that, uh, like for me, it's detail. So I have detail people who, you know, my superpower is maybe creativity and coming up and seeing connections, but my weakness would be all those details. So I've got people that are amazing at the details to look after those for me. What's your kryptonite?
0: You know, my kryptonite is... I've been pretty busy as a speaker over the years, and more than 90% of my work has always been referral and repeat. And if I'm having a conversation with someone, and I know I'm the person that probably should go, and they don't have necessarily the money and the budget that would be what I would normally charge, I still say yes. And it's been a flaw of mine from when I started 30 years ago that the first thing I never wanted to do was hold people hostage for information they could use just because I wanted to make some money. So I've always had this kind of pay it forward approach to it. If they really need it, I just think it's the most unethical thing for me to do is to say I won't come just because they don't have the money. So that's been one of the things, you know, thankfully... We talked about before the interview that I've always been a real estate investor, and that gave me the long-term assets that, you know, I'm in a good place financially. But I've been busier probably, but that's the little baby boomer in me. You know, I've been busier than I probably could have or should have been. Had a hard time saying no to people I know that needed the information and I could help. So we'd figure out how to make it happen. But then again, I don't think I could sleep if I didn't do that.
1: Well, you it know what, right, I think that career probably career. comes from your 4-H experience. And just to kind of go full circle on that, it was, you know, their motto was to make the best better, but do you remember their pledge? It says, I pledge, and I think you live this, my head to clearer thinking, my heart, my heart to greater loyalty, my hands to larger service, there Utah, and my health to better living for my club, my community, my country, and my world. And Kit, I think that That's sums it. you up in a nutshell. So thank you so much for being generous with your time, and we'll look forward to having you on a future episode. Thanks, Michael. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Bess Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. Goodbye.